0: Hello everybody. Thank you for joining the Great Dynamics podcast. My name is Ahmed Hassan, and today we have a very cool guest with us, Michael Bliche Sörensen. Michael is a military intelligence officer served for 12 years in the Danish military. Uh, he specialized in electronic warfare and SIGINT. He did a combat tour in Iraq, and he's very passionate about corporate intelligence. Today, He's at Meta's data center. He's the global security lead. And we're going to do a little bit of a different introduction that we normally do. I'm going to talk about uh, what we're going to talk about this episode. And then I'll give it over to Michael, like normal. So we're going to start with Michael's background. Then we're going to opportunities after working in SIGINT and Electronic Warfare we're going to talk about uh, an important topic in writing and intelligence called killing your darlings and keeping things brief then we're going to go over to adjusting to work outside of the army and the structure from there on we're going to talk about learning to build rapport with colleagues in the workplace and how different communication styles are from the military to the corporate setting then what you guys probably are very interested in what makes a good intelligence analyst We're going to go into discovering new career opportunities and staying open-minded. Michael's experience on deployment and commentary on how training and background can heavily influence an analyst's perspectives. And then we're all over the place, tailoring intelligence to consumer needs and creating valuable products. Issues in the field of OSINT, intelligence professionals being able to educate consumers on intelligence, what intelligence can and cannot do competing with other internal and external intelligence professionals in a corporate world and a lack of tactical intelligence in the private sector or having strategic intelligence analysts working on tactical problems and that often not going the way it should. And then intelligence products currently consumed by the corporate world and how they affect decision making. As always, we end with cultural recommendations. Over to you. Hi, Michael, or oh, Hi, Michael, oh Michael for American and English listeners. Thank you for uh, joining us. Well, thank you, Ahmed, for for having me. I've been following your your work a little bit on uh, on Facebook and the stuff that you post. Super interesting, and I would love to hear more from you. How you got into what you're doing right now?
1: Well, I think you know. Um... And, and I'll be happy to provide that background. My, it's it's very much a a game of chance. So it's very much coincidence that I ended up where I'm at. At least that's the feeling that I'm sitting with, right? I joined the army. I, I've, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, Ahmed, and I think the story resembles a lot of your previous guests as well, right? I joined. I wasn't a rifleman, as your typical this uh, you know guests were, right? But they weren't you know, I, actually. I, I, <laughs> but, hey, I, I had a yeah. I had a few uh, had a, a year or so in the light reconnaissance battalion. You know, went the officer way, joined, you know, for geographical reasons, purely joined the intelligence agency, also intelligence center we had. Uh, and then, you know, I heard of this branch of the intelligence center that did like, you know, electronic warfare, drive surveillance, bit of sickened close to where uh, my family lived and where I'm from. And I said, hey, you know, I'm not interested in, in radios. I'm not interested in communications. But, you know, it'll be a nice commute, right? It's 30 minutes you know that that's more than I could ever ask for, so I, I joined that and then then you know I I did that for a few years. I had a very nice deployment. Probably the 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 best part of my my time in the army was that deployment to Iraq. Came back, worked as a SME on the area of electronic warfare, electronic surveillance, wrote or was contributing to writing uh, the manuals. We have field manuals on that. Sat on some NATO working groups on electronic warfare, and then yeah, I decided to take the plunge right, and transition, which was, I think it's the the typical story as in, you know, looking for stability. The, you know, I I really enjoyed my time in the army, but being deployed every third year with, uh, you know, if you want to create a family and all stuff, I really respect people who are able to balance that. Personally, I wasn't. I, I enjoyed the exercises. I enjoyed all the travel, but I also enjoyed you know, being at home and having an opportunity to be with my family now that I've, you know, decided to create one. So I've, I've applied for I applied for some different positions. And then, you know, chances had it that during one interview with one company, I got to know a person who worked for Meta and then were, you know, pointed in the direction of the position that I'm currently in as the security lead or data center in, the,
0: in Denmark. Cool. This is well something that I've seen. And I don't know if you can attest to that. From people that have either from military intelligence or, or civilian intelligence services. Is there something that people from a either electronic warfare or SIGINT background find easier jobs?
1: I have a lot of previous colleagues that went on to the civilian sector in different roles, right? I don't know if it's easier relatively to other people with, you know, a similar background. Had I been an infantry officer or, you know, I, I don't I think it would have been a different type of role. I might have been able to apply to but I think the the mindset might be different like I've seen a lot of my peers who've been very successful in their transition because they have a very agile mindset coming from the, with an intelligence background so I, so I think that's definitely an advantage then I think that you know if you if you work intelligence corporate intelligence or if you work corporate security they are heavily influenced because there's so many previous law enforcement or military people in there. And they know these branches of the army that are often, or army or military that are often out there, you know, as a supporting asset, right? You know, everybody liked getting electronic warfare information out to them, you know, when they were standing knees deep, you know, and the same with from a human source, right? Everybody liked getting that message from a human source, you know, a human uh, intelligence cell, you know, saying, you know, don't go there or do that or you know, if we go, and and I think people recognize that also twenty. 25, 30 years after they experienced it and say, well, you know, that, that experience that I had with those kinds of people who worked in that sector, which, you know, that might make it easier. But in general terms, I don't know, I think I think it's the agile mindset that makes the transition in itself easier, but not necessarily like, you know, getting the first job.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Because, yeah, that's, that's something that, uh, from my own experience, what I keep hearing, that people with, you know, EW or SIG backgrounds particularly, are more, let's say, attractive, you know, for employees. And maybe that's because of the connection with cyber.
1: Yeah, there's, a, there's I think there's a high degree of transferability on some of the st- stuff you do, right? And, and that might be why they're more attractive. But, you know, I, but I also think that relates mostly maybe to some of the major nations like, you know, in the UK or in the US where they have these big firms also on the private side as a side that does this. But you know, you're yourself coming from the Netherlands and I work in Sweden right and I'm I'm coming from Denmark. Well we don't really have that kind of industry that support a private sick and electronic warfare enterprise, right? So it's very much government assets, but the mindset of you, you know, correlating, you know, collecting, analyzing a massive amount of data, understanding, you know, dangers of circular reporting, understanding the uh, cooperation with other ints and other single sources and how to fuse that into a product that actually adds value. I think, you know, that's something that maybe specifically within human, t- I would say as well, because you got your C2X cells, I think, something for the fusions, right? But also within Electronic Warfare and SICN is is quite um, unique because we we treat our capabilities with a very high degree of secrecy because they are very sensitive, right? but it's the conundrum that we also need to share the vital information to our customers. So so we don't want to share a message saying somebody said something about something's going to happen somewhere, right? Because that's, you know, then we then we sanitize that a lot, but we want to share something that's, you know, with a clear so what, that's actionable, and that's, you know, well well analyzed, right? And I think that mindset is, you know, taking the massive amount of data from an EW or second perspective, translating it to something that a customer that doesn't understand that can actually use an action on. It's a skill that's that's very sought after in any industry, right? You could work at a technician in any other field having to translate something to senior leaders and fail in that. And then, you know, your analysis isn't really worth anything.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't have said it better because I think the major point or the uh, pet peeve I hear from intelligence leaders is that it's so hard to either teach or to unlearn skills, whereby it's so hard for people that coming maybe from an academic background to convey their findings right in a short and succinct manner. And and you know yourself, you know, if it's if you go on and on and on, you know, you're you're quickly told, you know, to shut up and you know tell us exactly what's going on. So I think yeah that that makes a lot of sense because I think that's an element. That I see often missing with uh, with young analysts.
1: Yeah, and and I agree. Like the ability to deliver that bluff, you know, the bottom line up front. You know, what is the value of this report? And if you can't identify it yourself, then you probably shouldn't disseminate it. You know, you need to you need to kill your darlings. That's all the you know all the the things that we intelligence people say to each other, right? That because you know if it's if it's not worth anything, if you can't, then it doesn't matter that you've spent a week writing it up. You know, then it doesn't leave. You know your computer right
0: yeah, absolutely I mean I'm gonna point at this section of the podcast to some of the younger people in my team to listen to. see somebody else is saying, and I'm not the only one who said says this that, so you leave the army and the job that you're in right now at meta is your first job out of the army how how is that transition did you have difficulties and like how long did it take you to kind of like find your your feet, pretty much?
1: Yeah, so it's 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 the it's the first job out of the army. That's correct. And and I think even though I said that it would, it's probably easier for EW and second folks to transition. There's the, you know, the, it's easy in a way that the the stuff you need to do actually on the other side isn't that complex. The job you show up to do every day isn't complex in terms of the actual the core of it. The complexity kind of comes into play when you put in the cultural element of transitioning to a civilian workspace, right? And working perhaps especially from big tech is way different than working from a, you know, conservative army intelligence structure where you've got a pretty flat hierarchy in the intelligence structure compared to the rest of the military because of the way it functions and the way, you know, intelligence is is, is developed, but but nothing compared to the tech realm of things, right? You know, the the cultural elements related to how you would address uh, and have tough conversations, uh, you know, and this might also be like you know we've we've briefly discussed it previously. Uh, what is the not only the cultural difference between military and government and you know Czech, but also the differences between uh, Scandinavian culture, you know, straightforwardness and American politeness, right? And and I think I I ran headfirst into both the you know the Differences between military tech and the differences between Scandinavian and American in my first year or so in that, and I had had some awes- awesome mentors that would pull me aside after a meeting and said, you know, well, hey, you you, you can't interrupt people. Right? You need to give people, you know, an opportunity to speak, and you might not agree. You might think that what they're saying is totally off the charts, right? Not, you know, not Im- not relevant, not important, you know, not not accurate, but you you won't you won't convince them. Interrupting them. Then, so what I learned during the first year, and that's I think the first year joining EW was probably the steepest learning curve I had in terms of leadership and technical capabilities, all the stuff. But in terms of my personal development, the first year out of the military was, was, you know, almost or at least is rivaling that curve as well because it helped me understand that the interpersonal relationships with my colleagues and peers and all that stuff, right. It's just as important as what I deliver in the briefings, right, or in the in my advice to a senior leadership. Because if, if there's no relationship there, they're not going to take any of your advice into account, and they won't be a team player in in the work. You know, be, if you're not a team player, then they won't support you either. And it's just more fun going to work, in honestly, in like a climate where you support each other and you back each other up, and and you you have those tough conversations, but you have it in a in a way where everybody wins. Like that that should be the aim, here. and. That wasn't the that wasn't the military and government way, you know. When you had these insult briefings, where you know somebody stood up and said something that was totally off the charts, then some lieutenant colonel or colonel would have at them, right?
0: Outside of the people giving you advices or you know taking you apart and say like, hey, uh, maybe next time do it this way, or do it that way. What did you do to to like improve your interpersonal skills?
1: So I think you know, um, there's a lot of there was a lot of structured training within. Uh, any big company, right? So there's a lot of, you know, uh, uncover your biases. I already knew a lot of bias training. I had that from the intelligence background, right? Hey, we, you know, when we did basic and advanced analytical training, then you had that was the first module, uh, which or you know, almost the first at least. I think you you learned, you know, the different classifications and then you learned about biases, right? And then when joining a, a major company, they would have some module compared to that. Most companies do is what I'm told. So we, so of course did that, was, and and is extremely good. Then there was a lot of other uh, a lot of other training modules and and a lot of other you know internal training modules in terms of how you are an ally to your colleagues and how you know uh, you're you measured up against different verticals as well in terms of how you you know treat your peers the whole assessment system works so you also get assessed by your peers in terms of how you support them in their goals right which I think is is a brilliant way of assessing people. So you're, you're not only assessed as, you know, what you deliver, but also how you help your colleagues deliver on their on their goals and, and objectives. And and then, uh, you know, something very simple, like, you know, I moved my desk to the entrance of the open office space we had, right? So every morning I made sure that I'd, I'd be in there as one of the first people. I'd say good morning to everyone passing my desk, right? I'd learn their name and, you know, greet them by name. And when they left afterwards, I'd greet them by name again, right? And you'd have those small conversations by the coffee machine. And slowly you begin to build that rapport where you start, you know, you, you get to know people and you get under the, under the skin. That's the wrong way of saying it. But you, you get to know them, right? And they get to know you. And you and I think that was genuine interest in the people that I work with. And I think they could feel it as well. And if, And if you invest that, then, you know, they will also accept you, you know, once in a while, accidentally interrupting them. You know, if they say something that, oh, you know, and they'll
0: respect your opinions. I hear you. And from, like, members in your team, I think I think also for people listening to the podcast, what do you look for in a good analyst? So in my current role,
1: you know, I, I don't do intelligence in my current role. I'm on the customer side of things, right? We have an intelligence organization that delivers that to us. But in my, in my old role, what we looked for in analysts was the ability to... To be self-driven, I think that's very important from an analyst. Like you need you need to you need to have a genuine curiosity and you need to have like a drive to dig deeper. You know you need to cons- consistently or, and repetitively ask why. You know why is this the case and what other explanations could there be? And the second question is just as important, right? Because what you know what I think a big failure that we see, especially on geostrategic analysis, is that the often the first idea that pops up. Uh, into someone that is you know is, is deemed as the right one and they don't take the time to investigate all the possible you know avenues or possible uh, explanations right and then then they they need to be or at least they need to be able to learn structure so you know when i've i've heard a lo- i've heard a lot of your shows as well and i think you know a, a good advice is that you specialize within a field that you' are interested in if you want to get into intelligence but when you're in right you need to also have you know if you want to succeed as an analyst you need to have an ability to work very deeply and invest yourself into something that you absolutely have no interest in. I think that's just as important as you being, you know, because in not every report that you're writing you won't find that interesting. And and I think you know, uh, finding analysts that are that are, that will put in the effort every time, and then I will you know I'll live with the grammar, I will live with the you know the way that they deliver reports. So, but if they've got if they've got the the drive and the effort, no matter what topic it is that they're supposed to write about, if it's, you know, tread towards tea plantations or it's, you know, telephone infrastructure or whatever, then I think, you know, we've, you've, you've got something that you can build on. Because you you'll almost never find a finished analyst because all intelligent cells work in their own dynamics. Uh, so you need to find someone who's willing to adapt to those dynamics or can contribute to that way. Right?
0: Absolutely. It's crazy that you're just saying this now because I had an interview with a candidate today where this is the exact thing that I said because what makes the difference, in my opinion, between a good analyst and a great analyst is having that ability to invest into something that you're not interested in, really, but but also loving the process. And yeah, I'm, I'm happy that, that you're saying that because that's something that is not often talked about enough, I think. I think uh, people are often pushed towards a direction, and they think this is what I'm going to do, and there won't be things that I don't like about it. But you know, surprise, surprise. I think it's it's
1: a mindset thing, right? Like you, you know, at least I discovered in my career, just you know, in during the intro, as I told you, I never imagined myself working electronic warfare communications, right? When I joined the army, hey, I wanted to go out there, you know, jump in the mud, drive tanks, all the stuff that you see, right? But you know, other factors led me down that path, and and I, you know, I learned to because I invested time in it, I invested myself in it. I generally, you know, love doing it, uh, and that 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 kind of grew. You know, it, it grows on you, and I think that's that's if you if you go into it and you really commit to it, then there's then even the dullest area that you have to write about will become interesting because you'll find elements that are interesting, right? You'll find dynamics that are interesting.
0: Absolutely and because this is another interesting point you make because most of the people as you probably heard in this podcast they say, I didn't know I'm gonna, I was going to do this you know, I kind of like fell into it and I think this is, including myself is pretty much the same is there, because I, I don't want to dissuade people or, or because I want to always help people that, that want to like improve their careers or go a certain direction but is there a way to maybe better plan or be more prepared in career planning from a military and you know
1: yeah I, th- I think you know I th- I, it's always important to do your career plan right do do your what do you want to do in three years and five years and ten years and, and what do you need to do to get there but you also just have to acknowledge that you'll you'll experience that that plan won't come to fruition because as you go along the way right two or three years in, you discover you want to do something new that's right Because, oh, I never even imagined myself that this was a possibility. So I think that the most important thing is that, you know, it's very nice to have a goal and, you know, go for it, definitely. But also be open to other uh, possibilities as as you traverse down that path. You know, if nobody, if you ask, you know, a a toddler or whatever what they want to do, right, and you make a career plan based on that then you know there wouldn't be a lot of electronic warfare operators <laughs> there wouldn't be a lot of uh, you know because I've never heard one say that they would yeah, really no,
0: right no no so, I haven't even so just, heard like a teenager say it so
1: no exactly exactly so, <laughs> yeah. so, so so go in there and you know be open that there's new opportunities and there's a world out there with a million different jobs that are all different and have nuances and and when you're in one job and you find elements that are more interested, interesting pursue that you know then there's probably another job where you could do even more of that and then don't you know don't pay too much into the labeling saying is it intelligence or whatever i want to do intelligence because if you find the elements of intelligence interesting you'll find that a lot of other places as well because it's the you know it's the ability to do some deep analysis right it's the ability to impact you know key stakeholders and decision makers it's the it's the uh, for a lot of people it's the it's the ability to you know it's the it's the military government kind of thing you travel and you see the world right you go out and you know stuff that not a lot of other people do. You get to work with assets or uh, capabilities that not a lot of other people, you know, have ever worked with. And you'll find your own road. I don't think that there's any. You can't, you can't find two intelligence professionals that, that's done it the same way. And if you do, then, you know, I'd be, I'd be impressed. But if you find two intelligence professionals with the exact same background, right? You know, if you're a practitioner, I think, you know, going back to your question, just circling back, what can you do? If you, it depends on your starting point, Right. So I, I started, a, you know, I went into military intelligence and very much learned, you know, from a practitioner's perspective. So I understood that there was some elements of academia that I could kind of, you know, bring in to kind of improve the way I did my work. So I, during my first few years at the unit, I also studied a full-time master's in international law and security to get kind of that academic uh, perspective into it. And I think it's the combination of those two, understanding that academia might have theories and they might have a lot of, there's a lot of PhDs out there explaining why China did X or, you know, why they might think that China did X and, you know, the US did Y. But practitioners also understand that that there's no simple explanation to any of these because there's so many hidden dynamics. But it'll, it'll give you the academic approach for a practitioner in terms of structure, declaring your sources and all that stuff is very good. So, you know, pick and choose, get, if you're out there, get get uh, get your hands dirty and some uh, either join join the military, right? join the government, you know, j- join a company like yourselves as an analyst, and then add in some academic uh,
0: pieces. Yeah, no, it's, I think if uh, outside of the academics that we had on, uh, which is a good number of them, I think you're the first one who explained it the way that you did, really, of finding the balance between between the two and actually you know giving a bit of props to to doing an academic uh, study, which I always say like even the stuff that we are doing or uh, the intelligence school that we are, that we are setting up it's not a replacement for an academic degree you know it's a, to add to what you can learn in school so uh, yeah that's that's a really really good point. I would want to circle back for a second. Um, you mentioned in your time in the military, one of your best memories uh, or experiences was being deployed. Can you talk a, a bit about that and and how you experienced that and how that shaped, you know, your your opinion on that? So uh, I phrased it as the best.
1: I think it's uh, the right phrasing should be the most meaningful period of my military career, right? And maybe even uh, professional career after leaving school and all stuff because it was. It was an opportunity where, you know, you've, and I think a lot of uh, military practitioners or military officers would understand this, military personnel, that you train a lot, you know, you, you show up every day, you do your training, you run your drills, you run your exercises, you know, and then when you deploy, that's the first time where you actually get to test it out, right? So, I, you know, it's it's a, it's an opportunity for everyone to see, do we measure up? Are we as good here as we were in the pre-scripted exercises that we ran like 10, 15, 20 times at home, right? And even though they say, well, you know, the only unit within the military or government, right, that's constantly active, you know, that's, that's always on some sort of up, is the intelligence, right? Because you always you can always do that. But, but the opportunity to go down and do actual tactical intelligence on the ground and not like geostrategic stuff where you pull random stuff off the internet, right? But actual tactical intelligence to shaped like the local environment and the way that the task force we supported did their maneuvers and that stuff. That was, that was a great experience. And then the, the experience of, and I've always, I've, I've always been a very hard worker, and being able to go down there and do nothing but work at that time in my life was incredible. Like, you know, I got out of bed, and then we worked 18 hours, right? Sometimes even more, you know. Walking in the middle of night because we had to support some up or something like that, right? Uh, or something would happen. There's no disturbance. There's no. There's no uh, distractions. You would. You know. You'd head in your uniform, and you know you'd get a new one cleaned or, or whatever. Right at some stage when they what they got it to you, you don't have to go to the supermarket because you really wouldn't do that there. You yeah. know, for obvious reasons, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, because yeah. The, you know, you, you had to spend. You spent, and then of course, as it, it was very meaningful, but also, I think it was meaningful. Because of the stage of my life I was in, you know, being deployed all the time and being on deployment in general, uh, it's still my opinion that that's a young person's game, right? And but I wouldn't, I would really uh, stress that, I, you know, I know my colleagues, especially within the intelligence realm, that seven months plus one month, maybe one two months, is probably also where, you know, in terms of the trade craft, how to, how do you do assessment group meetings. How do you do information management, and why is it important? Right? How do you? What's the, you know? How do you work with different partners? How do you engage into a community? You know, five by communities that you are not a part of yourself. You know, on different restrictions levels and all this stuff. What do you share? What don't you share? You know, you you can train that all you want, but if you haven't tried it in an actual, you know, live environment, then you're missing out.
0: I wanted to ask you something that people keep asking me after we do podcasts, why don't you ask this or why don't you ask that? So there's a question that always comes up and that is, and I think this is a good example maybe that I can ask you, and I don't know if you have experience in this, but did you work with other nations' uh, intelligence counterparts? And which ones were you particularly impressed by without, you know, because this is something that people ask obviously from military guys and that are in a more kinetic role, but I don't often get the chance to ask how it is maybe in a coalition force or how that is.
1: So I think I, I can speak to it broadly, like, over the terms of my career, right? So because I, we worked a lot when, you know, predominantly in NATO forces and also on exercises and uh, deployments and, and courses. And I think the, the you know, there's a, uh, the thing that surprised me the most was that within the intelligence functions, you know, in the military, within all the countries that I've worked with, you have some of the most brilliant people. And you have some of the people you know at the other end of the scale as well. And and so and and that doesn't you know no matter what country you pick and choose from or what partner, you'll always experience both. I was I was very impressed by you know we worked with British UK signals as well Six, I think that were mentioned in one of your uh, podcast episodes as well. We worked with the in over there I was very impressed with them and their background how a, how they they would make a young corporal or young you know ENS corporal you know into a very proficient analyst that were able to stand up in front of a colonel and give a very convincing you know intelligence brief i think that was that's impressive you know we've worked with over the time of my career again we work with a lot of different special forces as well and and the 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 mindset that they share like the you know the can do attitude of you know let's get things done and skip the politics kind of thing right I just singled out one nation, so it's you know, the, and and they have their disadvantages as well in terms of how they recruit and what they do and all the stuff. But but that was very impressive, you know. I've I think it would be shameful if I didn't signal out the Swedes or the Norwegians just because culturally and attitude-wise, the Danish and the Swedes and Norwegians are so similar, right? Even with the Dutch, I've always thought that the Dutch are kind of an exile Nordic country um, because because the way we approach things are so similar, yeah, very in, similar in all realms. Uh, also within electronic warfare, and it's been uh, in general, I, I haven't had any bad experiences or any uh, bad coalition partners in that way. You know, we we were very restricted in terms of what we could share with whom because of the realm we worked in with the electronic warfare and second, and therefore, you know, it was very an intelligence is because it's a, it's a you know it's a matter of trading information, right? I think that's not. That might not be obvious to people not being in the actual uh, realm, right? Hey, if you give me some, then I'll give you some kind of thing, even if you're in a coalition. And and I think the uh, biggest challenge to that was be, uh, being in a coalition with uh, the five I nations, knowing that they had a lot of intelligence that they couldn't share. And, and we had some intelligence that were national only, of course, that we wouldn't share, but we were in the same upright.
0: Strange how that works
1: it is it you know it's it's very and that's and it's funny because when you uh, the people you recruit to the intelligence functions i think are very you know hands on want to get stuff done hard workers you know they, there's not a lot of politics in there, is my experience at least and then you put them into a into a box that is heavily political right that they have to maneuver in and and that's that's an interesting context so there's a lot of you know yellow notes being passed on the hallway. That's not of, not officially from that or that partner, but everybody knows that you know
0: a bit of horse trading, as they say. Yes, yeah, yes. So, yeah, something also that I was interested in, considering the role that that you do now. What are some of the geopolitical challenges that you face in your current role?
1: I think I think that's a that's a tough question though, Agneta. Right on the on the customer side from a geopolitical because if we did. I've I've always had a very hard time with geopolitical analysts and geopolitical products because they tend to be very uh, the relevance of them tend to be very little to people actually doing on the ground work right they they're very they're very nice in in a way that you know you pay millions of dollars into a geopolitical cell that'll support the CEO of some big company to make you know far-reaching strategic decisions but if you're involved in an operational context you know uh, as I am as a security leader of, an, of a data center, right? You know, geopolitical information to me and the gist and the bluff of those reports are often not better than what I can look up on the internet myself. And I think this is, I've also done posts on LinkedIn about this. And this might be because of the type of individuals that are recruited into the geo strategic realm versus the, and and especially maybe on the corporate side. And And I think this is this is the crux of my argument that I've tried to make on LinkedIn as well. Is that we re- they re- we recruit in the corporate realm because money is just bigger. They recruit strategic people to do tactical reporting, and what comes out is strategic reporting on tactical incidents, right? Which is very generic. Often, I think is the best words to use, and therefore not really useful. And the other the other one is that when you then actually need to do tactical intelligence uh, out, you know, in the corporate realm, which exists, right? You know, you know. You, you don't call it intelligence, you call it investigations. And, you know, what's, who's better to do investigations than a former law enforcement you know person, police officer? And the case is that, you know, they just have a way different mindset. So what ends up, uh, you know, coming your way is that you'll end up, you know, having a very high level strategic analyst doing something, you know, for your area that, you know, a report for your area where you actually know more than they do because you're right there on the ground right. And and you know, you'll have a you'll have a former law enforcement officer doing what we would call uh, you know, if they do insider threat investigations, like a you know, doing like a target pack almost method right. But not that because they're so set in their ways of thinking from the police side of things. So they're not willing to say, well, he might be, you know, doing he might have done that or might you know, the the uncertainty that they allow in their assessments are just so minimal, meaning that what they can produce in terms of intelligence isn't really worth anything so they, they miss that analytical courage they miss the the outside of the outside the box thinking you know um and i think that's a that's a big struggle within the industry as a whole uh, that you know i hope w- we can all change over the coming years
0: no it's i've seen this i've worked alongside people i worked for somebody who was actually on a podcast that is some law enforcement background then it was often you know, it had to be evidence-led, you know. So intelligence and evidence are not the same thing, right? So as you said, you, you talked about uncertainty, you said minimal. I think in most cases, it's non-existent, you know. So it has to be this happened and we need to be able to prove that it happened. And I think one field maybe that did a great job on tradecraft, at least, in the OSINT community, I think they do a good job of, of blending those two. I think where they fail, and that's not necessarily their fault because maybe the the training or the background is not there, but is that how they convey their findings, right, to you uh, or, or to other decision makers. And I think that is, some, that, that is a, yeah, I don't know if it's a huge problem, but it is a problem. And I don't know what the exact solution is from an outsider because for us we try to basically one week them get the tactical stuff and the other week do the strategic stuff and, and switch them over as much as we can and, and we give them opportunities to work on tactical products. I think outside of experience and, and exposure it's very difficult to to teach.
1: And I agree with that but I think you know the the mentality that you have to and, and that comes with experience, so I totally agree with that. But the mentality is, or needs to be, just as any other thing, right? And I think that's also where academia can kind of blend in, is that you need to know, or you need to identify the questions you wanna, you know, find answers to before you begin, and and you can do a preliminary, de- you know, dive in and see, you know, but you can't just say I want to know something about a Chinese-U.S. relationship, you know, because that my 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 customer might be interested in. That. But you need to go you you need to be and i think this is what sets aside like the intelligent or the uh, the excellent intelligence and security firms in the private world from those that are just you know producing more spam you know mass you know reproducing news from other outlets and you know putting their own logo on the header is that you you need to have a very deep conversation with your customers you need to understand their business better than what you know you than anything, because you need to understand the dynamics that they are interested in. And then you need to develop that, you know, I, I think I, I, in the ministry we call it commands critical information requirement, right? You know, what information is critical, which questions are critical for us to be able to answer for them to make a business decision that adds value to them or reduces risks, right, or, you know, exposes risks. Uh, and, and for a lot of people, right, they, you know, and I think this is my, this is where I take a jab at the ocean, folks, right? Because they think you know they can just put a or you know not they sorry I'm speaking to them as a as a uniform kind of group of people right but you know a lot of ocean a lot of ocean uh, work seems to at least in the beginning because people thought that well it's just the internet right anybody could do it seems to be hey let me Google something and then you know one is you know they first they don't have the craftsmanship of the intelligence field so they so there's a huge and I'd really you know. Do, if somebody could map this out, this would be excellent. But I, I but the amount of circular reporting within the ocean community and within that is astonishing, right? Because you know they they don't declare their sources, which is okay, but they also they don't declare anything. They don't declare their uncertainties, right? They don't. They, there's no there's no standard yardstick as the mod uses as an example, right? And then the other thing is that there's a convergence happening, just as. And when I was in the military, we talked about the convergence in terms of cyber, meaning that cyber was this big thing that everybody wanted to invest in from a government perspective. So if you called your item cyber, even if it wasn't really cyber, then you'd get money right. And therefore, everybody, you know, tried to kind of go in under the cyber umbrella, which, you know, was wise from a funding perspective, but also kind of messed up all the theoretical frameworks and how we understand and how we do you know, how we, how we understand cyber and electronic warfare as a, way, as a way that they're dependent on each other, as an example. And I think OSINT is very right to say. Like OSINT, you know, everybody knows OSINT, right? You know, I, I think Bellingcat's done an excellent job of putting that on the agenda as a, as a very popular example. Uh, and, and, and and now, you know, whatever you're doing, you'll call it OSINT. Well, what you're doing might actually be imminent, right? It might actually be Spaceint or Geoint or whatever, which is just, as a niche in itself, but you think you can do it because you've just labelled yourself uh, as an ocean expert, right? So, so, so I think you know, this is me again acknowledging that I know nothing about ocean. But from an outside perspective, we should slim down the ocean definition for these folks, separate it up into the actual disciplines that are present, right? And then make sure to declare what they're doing. I think that's the, that's the most important thing there.
0: Yeah, I think, I mean, if you anybody that's listening to this. You listen to this podcast i've said all of the things i'm just saying already so it's it's a it's a it's a theme right what i what i've learned because what we do at Great dynamics it's can be split into two it's the stuff that we do for an online audience which is open source right and what we do for clients it's very different and what we do for clients and and asking, you know, what what are you know uh, critical uh, requirements is us having conversations, and sometimes it is requirements that they don't even know they have, right? That they that they ought to know, right? Where I think with the open source side, where that problem comes is who is your audience, right? Because it's not a it's, it's not a figure that you can, you know, either in, engage with unless you have an audience that you can engage with and, and ask questions and these type of things. So I forgive people in OSINT for that. But I think the one trouble that exists in OSINT, what I don't see people talking about, and you mentioned something about this, is that the declaring of sources is often not done because it's malicious or the reason they often don't declare sources is because they want to keep it to themselves. And it's a competition. And the competitive element is what is hitting, you know, the the, the, the value of your reporting. And I don't know if that's un- understood. And it's also because it's such a unstructured, almost rebel like community right, then, you know, a a guy sitting in his bedroom can do this and, you know, can become like a huge on Twitter or or anything, which I respect and and I love some of those guys too uh, and girls. But circular reporting, you know, go to Telegram, take it from Telegram, translate it poorly, you know, put it on Twitter. and somebody takes it from Twitter and then it ends up at a think tank, you know. So even before you know it, you know, you are quoted by the New York Times. And they don't even know who you are. You're oh, an 18 yeah, year old in your bedroom. You know they'll they'll confirm it by the original telegram one, right?
1: So now they got two two sources in it, which is the you know in, in, in AI, And I, I I acknowledge everything you said there. Because, you know, and it's totally accurate. The competition from a corporate side, I think you're right. That might be the aspect that are because in, from a government military side, why wouldn't declare your sources? You know, we would. We would have two reports. We would have a report that would go to the community that we shared all information with, right? The second EW community. And I know a human has the same, you know. And and then we would have a report that would go to, you know, not all, that would go to the all-source community for fusing with other single-sources. The one that was specific to a trunk offer would have all the identifiers needed, right? So, you know, and I think it's... And it would be the same from a human perspective. Like the one going into the human section would have all the identifiers needed. That to avoid one human team speaking to one person and then another human team speaking to the same person, and then those two teams writing, you know, individual reports. And then all of a sudden, you've got two reports coming from the same source, right? Because that, that, that's you know pretty bad. Um, well, and and it happens, right? But I think that is the that is the thing that ocean in a corporate world needs to battle with, is that you know you'll you you something will trend on some platform, and you don't know you know the uh, validity of that information because they're too bad at declaring their sources. And if you really if you're really a dedicated ocean analyst or intelligence analyst, then dedicate your sources. And I think the audience will follow because they will then you know at least the people who understand the business will know that, you know, and it, it'll also be a way of, you know, for yourself of covering your own analysis and, like, what you're reporting. Uh, what's And and separating, and I think that's another part of it, when you see these strategic analysis uh, or disseminated reports or even the OSINT reports, when we wrote reports, we had a clear delineation between the facts, the comment, and the assessment rate. And it's And it's very clear for obvious reasons because, you know, if you mix all of that together, you have to spend a lot of, and then it becomes an academic discipline and going in and actually deciphering in it of what is actually opinions here, what's context, and what's what, you know what have we got from sources, and it shouldn't be in these in this environment. Right? But with the background of geostrategic uh, uh, analysts often coming from academia, that's how they learn to write intelligence reports, and and the, and it and for them, and I remember this for myself when I started it seems that they almost need to dumb down their argument to put it in intelligence because it, the fluidity, of course, is impacted. Reading a good intelligence report doesn't mean that it's fluent in how it's written. You know, it's not written like a novel. Re- but but you, but reading it, uh, the, the value of it is that you can see the argument clearly from the beginning to the end of the assessment. And you can see all the bits and pieces that led to that assessment. And if you if you get a, you know and that's why also there's a million companies doing this one slide PowerPoint kind of presentation of some something they call intelligence, which I, you know I've, is it's a very nice to print out and have on your you know whatever wall or you'd use right or it's nice for a briefing where you can talk through that slide, but delivering it on social media platforms, you know saying this is the recent uh, intelligence coming out of Ukraine and then you got a series of formations scattered across Ukraine you know, and then someone else. It, it...
0: Yeah, no, well, I hear yeah. you. And it, it's something that um, we we deal with ourselves and we've kind of, as you said, you know, we've templatized it. So we we have the background and then we have our key judgments, supporting evidence and the, the analytic, you know, uh, comment on the bottom. And the thing is, I'm seeing now organizations doing that more and more. But when we started doing that, I would get questions. Why are you guys doing this, right? Because I wanted to make clear, we are not doing information. We're doing intelligence. And I want to show, and sometimes it's not great or, or good, but I want to show that there is a difference and that there is a method behind the madness, and it's not the same. And actually, I'm happy when I see other people doing it. Because at least I had some impact on you know what they're doing, and they're doing it, in my opinion, in the correct way. So I know we are getting a little bit into the weeds here, but it's not often I can talk about these things. I'm 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 happy you uh, you indulging me in uh, in these topics.
1: It's, it's also it's not very Tom Cruise ish, right? It's not very Mission Impossible kind of, you know. Hey, you need to have a template and you need to have structure on your reporting, right? You need you need to declare your sources. Well, hey, you know, and 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 for me as well, like the uh, the the uh, I think you know that is what sets aside like an intelligence function, you know, that's actually functioning from someone who is you know just trying to, as you said, just a, a rogue, right, out there trying to kind of you know get a foot in the door on this kind of thing where money is just poured into from all companies because, you know, they want their own strategic analysts, right? Which, you know, hey, you can you you can grab that off, you know, anywhere, right, basically.
0: Yeah, you're right, you're right. It's 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 interesting, at least. I think to that, what you just said there, do you think that we also have responsibility in educating the clients of what intelligence is and is not? And what it can do and it cannot do?
1: I, I think that's a society that's like the ethics of the business, right? You know, you can, and I think it, it, and that's a responsibility of anyone. Like I wouldn't hire a carpenter to come in and then I would tell them how to do the carpentry, right? You know, they would need they would need to advise me and how, you know, the best result is when they're done. And I think that is the same for for any trade where you have a certain amount of knowledge on how to do stuff and somebody is buying your services. Well, then, you know, then you have to engage in that dialogue, saying, "Well, if you want intelligence on that, that, and that, or if you want, you know, actual decision supporting reports or elements that support you in your business process, then then we need to get A, B, and C, or you know, then it'll it'll require a D, E, or F." And you know, it's very easy for any company just to take take the money, right? Take the money, have a you know half a desk sitting somewhere. You know, doing you know having a Boolean search set up on Google for Google Alerts, uh, maybe monitoring TweetDeck, right? And then you know when their name is mentioned, you'll send a signal to to the CEO on email, right? And you need to send one every week so they know your name. But the but the but that that doesn't add any value, right? No. But the problem is that the problem is that a lot of customers don't know what they don't know, right? You know, they don't know what intelligence is. They don't know what will what sets aside the bad actors in this market. As in, you know, the bad, the unethical companies and those that actually try and do intelligence because intelligence isn't cheap. So they have, you know, if they have to pay uh, to get that service, they have to invest not only, of course, money, but also time in training the intelligence staff on their business model and what's important to them. So if you, if you, you know, and I think that's why some of these models that intelligence companies have where you'll sign up for a different, you know, class or whatever, you'll be a customer, right? That relationship, you know, you won't deliver them actionable intelligence from day one because it's yep. a give and take kind of thing. Yeah, like yep. it's a relationship that needs to develop over time, where they get to learn your business and you get to learn them and what they can provide and what they can't provide. Because you can't, us as an intelligence function, you can't be an expert on all areas, all industries, all you know, all geographical areas as well. And you and you need to acknowledge that and you need to declare that. And then and then I think you know there's there's an onus on the on the corporate intelligence companies or risk mitigation companies or whatever you call them, due diligence services, KYC services, whatever, right? To sit down with the client, you know, the, and, and a lot of this could be hashed out, like, you know, send your analyst to the actual uh, customer you're supporting, have them work out of their office for a week to understand the business, you know, get a tour of the facilities, uh, you know, get those insights. So you understand what the pain points is, what will actually impact and what's important to them.
0: Do you think that analysts should, because this is another issue that I see, do you think that analysts should work more on their interpersonal skills? Because how, because often you, if, if a company hires an intelligence company and they might have something like an intelligence function already, there is competition. Like, why do we need these guys on the outside? And I think that needs to be hashed out immediately because i've seen it that that people within the organization will go to their manager and say why do we need these guys or they're actively trying to undermine what you're doing even though you're there to help them right so that's a that's such a difficult uh, and that's a, such a difficult one and also having analysts that are capable and strong enough also to go into an organization and put this on and and
1: it's the same it's the same structure if you are a McKinsey consulting uh, consulting coming into a company right you know you'll experience the same thing if you are a you know an ISO auditor or whatever you'll experience the same thing right you know if you buy one of those services so I think it's just that that's just the mechanisms of being an external consultant within any industry but and and in and in honesty and I think you know you, you said it yourself like the internal intelligence function will go to the manager and said well you know what you know why, why do we need them? Because, you know, you have us. They, they, we're doing it already or whatever. And I think, you know, to me, hiring an external company in to do intelligence, if the subject, you know, is so similar to each other as the internal department you've got, is a clear signal to your inter- internal department that they need to get their stuff together and start providing you with something that's actually valuable to the business. Because if the external department coming in can do that without sitting there Monday to Friday, you know, without sitting in the business meetings, without all the privileged information that any internal intelligence unit would have, then you're really doing a bad job. Because you're so the any internal intelligence function is so far ahead of the external consultants coming in because they live and breathe the company culture and the way the company's structured and they understand the specific context and you know whatever is important. Uh, to the business leaders because they engage with them on a you know weekly, daily, monthly, whatever basis, right? That they should be the products that they deliver should be way above those that any ex- uh, exterior or sorry external co- consultant could deliver. When external consultants are brought in anyway, I think it's a matter of they can all they can contribute with their uh, with some diverse perspectives to some of these intelligence functions that's kind of very stuck in their ways, and 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 they can. They, and I think the, you know, as you said it yourself, you're there to help them. You know, you're there to they. And and I think you know this is this is a way of undermining your own business, maybe Ahmed. But the industry out there's pretty large, right? But you know, if they don't take what you're good at, you know, when you come in, and then adopt it into their own function, you know, then it's their own fault. Then they will be will be become irrelevant over time. And and of course, as you you know, the benefit you have is that you've seen. 100 different companies in different industries and how they do and solve the intelligence question. So you'll bring that perspective in uh, when you come in as an external consultant. But, you know, this and this is this is what's always kind of bothered me is that if I can get an intelligence report off LinkedIn, that's worth more than the intelligence reports I get off of our full-time analysts sitting inside the company or something. Not saying that's the case. But if you're sitting in a company where that is the case, you know then you need to shake up the intelligence functions that you have because then they're they're not you know they should start paying rent uh
0: uh-huh. yeah yeah, yeah that's true i wanted to ask you a question that i don't always ask but i think it's an interesting one is there anything that keeps you up at night i
1: i don't know if keep you know i you've you've heard we've had a, i think we've had a very good uh, discussion or talk over the last hour almost segment and i think my the state of maturity within the private intelligence industry, you know, I I still find extremely, or you know, it was a, a huge surprise when I transitioned. And so, so will you know the the you know over the last years, everybody's seen it. There's you know masters popping up left and right on intelligence studies and cyber studies. I think you know. That'll, that might solve somewhat it from an academic perspective, like provide a lot of tools and, you know, provide some best practices and all that stuff. But there's still, there's still a, like a, you know, dog with a with a, with a ball kind of thing. Like, you know, every, you know, 90% of all the strategic analysts sitting there are analyzing on the same items. So we're very much, we're very much, you know, and that's why you, in every company or in every military organization you had a collection plan, right? That covered your entire area of responsibility. But that, uh, method of working isn't as prolific in the corporate world, and uh, you don't identify this. You don't you don't map it out. You know you go from you go from shiny thing to shiny thing, and then it, you know when something pops up, it's always a surprise. So the the ability to be uh, you know forward looking in your assessments, the ability to foresee things, right, so you can actually enable businesses to take action and not just report on what has happened. I think that that continuously surprises me, and 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 they you in know, honesty, it, it makes me wonder sometimes of why we have these corporate intelligence functions, because they are more, you know, they are they are a corporate news channel for a lot of companies. Like they they just they correlate news and then they provided it internally with a you know two line commentary, which is is not you know. Hey, I I I have my own you know API set up that pro- will prompt me when there's a when there's a breaking news locally, right? That that doesn't provide me any value. I think that, you know that, and the failure from senior leadership, especially to see that, you know, that the value provided to tactical decision makers is very small from a corporate intelligence side because 90% of the business focuses on supporting senior leadership in these businesses. That's the,
0: that's the. Uh,
1: I don't have a, a a way of solving that or even if it should be solved, is that
0: just the uh-huh. way it is? Or oh, it can be solved. No, yeah, um, or if it can be solved, exactly. Yeah.
1: But it's it's something that you know I keep every time somebody tries to sell or talk about corporate intelligence. If the next slide that they show, you know, is 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 a globe and you know the highlighting all the different conflicts that they're covering or whatever, right? You know, then I'm out. And and unfortunately, that's like uh, that's a, you know it's it's political science majors coming in and just doing more political science stuff,
0: basically from a corporate world. You know, it's. Um... From time to time, we take like interns that we train becoming analysts. And it's funny when they go out into the wider world and they get jobs. And some of them get really good jobs in, in, in corporate intelligence teams. And one, I'm not going to say a name and where this person is at, but somebody I was really proud of in our team and uh, went into the private sector, got a really good job. And then maybe two months in, I get a phone call We don't do intelligence. I'm not hired to do intelligence. I'm doing risk monitoring or, you know, this is not. And it is, to me, a surprise when they go to, and I'm not going to say names of companies, but they go into other organizations way bigger than us. And they're like, uh, the funniest one was, I'm now embedded analyst at a company, at a large organization with global footprint. And I know more than my manager. Oh, well, we're talking about intelligence and and that's the person who's supposed to train me they tell me. So, I am seeing what you're saying and but I don't know to I mean, I can only do what we can do and the stuff that we do for our clients is fairly is very niche and we don't pretend to solve all problems, you know, with with all kinds of solutions. But yeah, I hear what you're saying and I think a bit of education of intelligence consumers as well as Analysts and collectors is, I think, where we can have the most impact.
1: Right, I I think you've you've answered excellently here at at the end because you know I've 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 struggled since I came out like with the conundrum or the is there any intelligence companies out there that actually does tactical intelligence right that actually try and better themselves that because you know that embedded analyst that you spoke to there, you know. He's embedded in the company, but I'll wager you that he sits there doing reports on Ukraine and Crimea or whatever one week, right? Saying, you know, this has increased tensions politically in in X Y C, and this company might even not even have any affiliates, you know, in in Ukraine that's impacted. And then there's a then there's a a, a demonst- demonstration or something like that locally that they don't catch because that that's not that's not the focus. Or you know, there's a there's a uh, there's a railroad strike in London, so they so no one can commute to work. Well they didn't caught uh, you know, catch that one because their focus is on the Israel Palestine conflict or and I think someone and I I, I I'll just summarising from our conversation, right, and I will just I'll hope you agree, but otherwise to say so I've met afterwards, but someone someone needs to needs to in their dialogue with senior management. Tell them that hey, these G-GU strategic stuff. Some of it might be very important to you, but you know, impact to business. We we can provide you know we can use those resources better on a local or regional level for where you're present in terms of you know what's happening on the ground near your office in London or what's happening you know on the ground, and and especially when you're an embedded analyst, that should be what you're thinking, What you're thinking about, then you can buy whatever you know strategic products you need to understand the Ukraine Crimea country.
0: I agree. I agree. I'm not gonna pretend like that's not a conversation I've had often and I think for us the way we, 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 we saw that we could compete was we just go and talk to people in places where nobody else wants to go or can go and that's the best way I saw we could compete. So the people that come to us are not really interested in larger themes because they're interested in what's right in front of them. And they should be. They should be. Exactly. And, and we cannot, for example, oil and gas company operating in Nigeria and they're, they're thinking of expansion to maybe a neighboring country or a region. Well, what they ask us is, all right, it's all well and good what the newspapers are saying and what, what what's in the open source. I want to know what the governor has to say you know, what, uh, what the locals have to say. Do they even want us there, right? And I know that most of my competition is not going to do that. So these are the type of problems and areas we focus on. So we kind of, we have some corporate clients, but majority of our clients are governments. So um, because we cover mainly a very specific problem set around either from an irregular warfare perspective or from a direct threat in a specific location or that they try to understand. So I remember the first client who ever told me, F OSINT. I'm not, I don't care about that. And I don't even know if they knew what OSINT was, but they they, they saw like, if everybody can do it, then why am I paying you to do it? Because I can do it myself then. They were, they were like, we want you to talk to the person that is in this region, or we want you to talk like, do these rebels really hate us or can we operate there and you know, do they welcome us providing support to whatever you know, location they're in? So those are the type of things that we focus on.
1: That would be variable, right? Instead of having an analyst go in and look at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs or whatever, right, travel advisory, and then communicating it in a one slide to so you saying, well, you should, probably shouldn't go there.
0: Yeah, yeah. And, and to be fair with you, when I started, that's the type of stuff we did until somebody said, guys, this is not making a difference for us, right? Do what you're good at, you know, do what you're trained to do. And that's when we realized, all right, we need to change our ways and we need to refocus. So I do agree with you on, um, on what you said. Any pieces, I mean, you already gave a lot of advice to, to analysts and people who want to get into intelligence. Was there anything you want to add to that?
1: Don't don't overthink it, right?
0: You know, do
1: make your career plan as you discussed there, or as we discussed earlier. And then you know, hey, life changes, things changes, opportunities come, and they, you know, and you don't have to accept every opportunity that comes along because another one will also, you know. So just and then put in the work, be diligent, be, you know, as we if we discussed what sets apart the good analyst from the excellent one, right? You know, put in the effort also on those pieces that you initially find you know boring or tedious. Then you know, if you deliver consistently to a, to a, you know, or at least if you learn something as you deliver it, you know that's I think that's the two elements, right? You know, you need to grow personally in the way you know when you write your reports, you need to learn something at the topic, or you need to grow uh, professionally, as in kind of you know how the your manager or the company kind of you know perceives you as an analyst, right? And if you and if you can identify any of those one of those two aspects in what you're doing, hey, then keep doing it.
0: Great. Any recommendations on what you're reading or what you're watching, what you're listening to right now?
1: I had to I had to catch up on your podcast, right? So you know, uh just because I'm I, I was I was missing the last few episodes there before this uh, this one. So I'd I'd recommend everyone going and, and listen to that, of course. But hey, if you're listening to this podcast, then you know that's yeah. kind of void, <laughs> right? The uh the um I think the book that I've that I'm reading and, you know, I, I'm rereading actually is the book Factfulness by Hans Wassling, which I think he's actually a Swede, so uh, you would, you'd recognize that one, right? And, and I really enjoyed that, the way it handles and talks about data. I think it's it's a contested book and now it's, you know, how it presents items. But it's it's also, it's a, when you when you operate with what you and I do in it, be it intelligence or security, sometimes it's very nice to see that things are actually getting better and not worse, right? And, and, and uh, so that, that's one of the books that I'm reading. But I'm also I'm like one of those. I never only read one book, right? I have five or six or seven books, you know, going all the time and then, you know, pivot in between depending on, you know, what the mood is. So, uh, you know, I, I think the most important thing is, you know, read, do something. Even audiobooks, right? Just, you know, keep keep uh, keep learning about the subject that you're interested in. And then also pivot outside that sphere, right, to something else. So you might discover new interests.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, I don't know if I've ever talked about this in a podcast, but for me, like, I read a lot, uh, not just for work or anything. It's just I've always enjoyed it since I was a kid. But so my parents did at least that a good job with that, teaching me to to enjoy that. But um, I'm I'm reading now a book. Um, I'm rereading a book because there's a second part that came out. This is more of a, like a spy novel. I think people will really enjoy it. I don't know if you, have you ever heard of Terry Hayes? Uh, he wrote uh, I Am Pilgrim. It's a fantastic book. Like uh, I, I can say honestly that I can recommend it to anybody. It's a, it's seven years old now. But his second book, it was highly anticipated, came out, which is The Day of the Locust. And from, from what I'm hearing from, my buddies that are reading it, they're saying it's amazing. But I wanted to read the the story, the original story, and then go back to it.
1: It's, that, it's not one of those issues you'll bring on the airplane,
0: right? I saw 890 pages. Yeah, but uh, you'll, read it, you, you'll read it pretty fast. And I read a lot of Japanese manga, uh, which I've always, since I was a teenager, I've done that. So that's something that uh, I'm reading now, one on a wandering samurai called Vagabond. It's, it's actually really good. So that I can recommend, but thank you so much, uh, Mikael, for your time, for your insights, for your passionate opinions. And I think it will, I think it will make a lot of people think what you have to say because it's not often that somebody comes on a podcast and opens an attack like that on corporate intelligence and the status quo. So, uh, and I appreciate it because there's a lot of things that. I have clients that listen to the podcast and they will let me know like, oh, you know, uh, it's so interesting what that person have to say. So in this case, I think, uh, um, and the person that I'm talking about right now, he will know when he listens to it. He's an avid fan of the, of the podcast. But I think you, you made a lot of good points that I always try to tell him about, you know, the approach of, of this stuff. And, and when he sends me an article about what's going on or somebody's doing similar work as we are doing and I'm like just look at any of the sources there's not one named you know so yeah thank you so much again for your time and I um, yeah I really hope to speak with you again and uh, and um, follow what you will post on LinkedIn and really enjoy that anywhere people can find you or if you want to be found feel feel free to engage with me directly on LinkedIn right and you know I
1: I, I truly, you know, I can't stress this enough, like the importance of mentorship, right? Having mentors in the sector, absolutely. And 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 I think you know we are uh, still a very tight knit, closed off, you know, uh, community. But I think my last kind of uh, statement in this podcast would be: if you're sitting out there with any wish going into this, right, or every, you know, into corporate security or corporate intelligence, then find yourself some mentors. I've had three or four mentors over my career. Brief career on the other okay. side of the uh-huh. of the fence, as we call it here, right in the corporate realm, and they, you know, they've all contributed with unique perspectives and unique items that that kind of helped me grow my career. So absolutely, so do that. It's a
0: great piece. Yeah, it's a great piece of advice, actually. Yeah, I can I can only uh, second that. Same for me, particularly understanding this weird industry and uh, and making introductions because. That's another one. If you if you don't know the person or you didn't serve together, or it's such a hard, you know, especially because we are a suspicious bunch, you know, it's hard to yeah to to talk to people. But yeah, thank you so much, and for everybody listening, if you made it this far, thank you guys for all the support, and uh, I want to also give a special shout out. You mentioned it already, uh Mikhail, eh, to the to the countries in the nordics you know i i know i've mentioned that that i live in sweden but i think sweden De- finland denmark and norway are all represented in the top 20 listeners sweden and and norway and denmark are all in the top 10 even so which is above because it's not that big of populations but yeah thank you for all the support and uh, um yeah thank you guys and anybody listening to the podcast that is interesting to coming on and sharing your story reach out thank you